When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I've had a very jolly and unexpected time at the gym this morning. What were you doing, Trish? Do we want to know? Do you want to tell all the listeners this? Or is this a, some kind of secretive personal no, hygiene moment I, we don't want to share? It's not personal hygiene, no. I think I should share it because it's about unusual places that you have a little disco dance. And I <laughs> did my swim. And then I got, I always like to have a little steam after my swim. And that's on the sort of edge of the swimming pool. And there was a um, aqua aerobics class going on starting as I got out. And I was in the steam room all on my own. Well, I was feeling very jolly after my swim and uh, started dancing to Diana Ross. I'm coming what, in up. your little swimsuit. In the swimsuit. <laughs> in the steam. I'm coming up. Was it that? Do, no. do I want the world to It was that. See? Top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. And I think I, w- I think we want to know very unusual places that people have found themselves having a bit of a dance, don't you think? Yes, because we've talked about this. There's nowhere for Gen X to go dancing without being really embarrassing to everyone around them who's under the age of 45. Exactly. Apart from your own front room. So let's make it steam rooms. Steam rooms and other places. And other places we want to hear. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Now... Before we start this new episode of Postcards from Midlife today, Trish, I want to do a soup song, (laughs) just a tiny bit of name dropping. And I think you might appreciate it. Oh, well, we always love a Lorraine name drop, don't we? Because you can't help yourself. (laughs) Can't help it. You can't help it. It's it's not, you're not going to repeat yourself though. As long as you're not repeating yourself about how The Rock sent you a birthday video message for your 50th, because you have told us that several times. It's not that one, is it? No, it's nothing to do with young Dwayne. It's actually about the Jones. I've met a couple of Jones. Well, probably I would say the most famous British Jones recently. And I want to spread the love of the Jones, the two Jones. So um, I went to Cheltenham Literary Festival to talk Mm -hmm. about my book. Mm-hmm. Mom, what's wrong with you? 101 things only the mothers of teenage girls know. <laughs> available to buy now. I, yes. Exactly. I'm either name dropping or plugging my book. Yeah. Anyway, I was interviewed on stage by Dame Joan Baker. Oh, my goodness. Dame 88, Joan. 88. Yeah. 88 years old. Absolutely smart as you would like oh. on it. More on it than me. She was just amazing. And then in the t- we were in the town hall and in the mm. massive marquee next door, which I thought was going to be a problem because I thought there might be a battle of tickets, but town hall was packed has to be mm. said in the marquee next door the other joan joan collins <gasps> is she a day she's a dame joan i think oh yes she? she's a dame I think she might be a dame joan double dame. double dame double joan anyway joan so i was obsessed slightly distracted because obviously i'm a massive um dynasty fan <laughs> 
also a massive Joan fan. I once yes. sat next to her. I am going to name drop again. I once sat oh, next to her at London Fashion Week. Yes. About she's 10 years ago. And she yeah. said to me, oh, darling, will you send me a copy of Elle when this is in the magazine? And I said, yes, of course. Um, who's your agent? I'll send. She said, oh, no, no, just send it to my home address. And then she wrote her home address. Oh, how adorable. The mayor, the mayor very... of London, then Boris Johnson sat the other side. Anyway, I was trying to get a glimpse of Joan and I got a mm-hmm. little glimpse of her in the VIP. Yes. With her entourage. This is Joan um, C, not Joan. Joan B. Collins. No, Joan Bakewell I yeah. was attached to, as you can imagine, like yes. an octopus holding yes. tightly by my side and basically giving her the love because I love her so much. Um, and then Joan was sort of floated in and floated out. And I said to the, the lady running the tent, the PR, what, how, what did she do? And she said, Joan had nibbles. <laughs> She had nibbles. Joan had nibbles. I oh. don't know. It's like, is that the title of her next oh book about hamsters? Goodness. I don't know, Joan. I wonder nibbles. if it was uh, caviar or cheese and pineapple on a stick. Do you think either of those maybe? Might have been. She only eats, she eats sparingly, doesn't she, Joan? Mm, I'm sure she, she has does. small portions, something you don't know anything about. <laughs> oh, I'm loving the double Jones. It's fantastic. It's so joyous isn't it to see these yeah. women who have just you know worked hard all of their life and they have such positivity and um there's another Joan actually that we've been talking about which who we've been looking at on Instagram and I love this Joan too Joan McDonald who is also amazing she's 74 and when she was 70 her doctor told her she was in a terrible condition she had high blood pressure high cholesterol acid reflux and he just said you have to get fit and good lord she did she get fit didn't she Oh my gosh, she is extraordinary. She, you, you must follow her. Uh, it's called Train with Joan. Is her Instagram account? She can deadlift 175 pounds now. Oh, she's extraordinary. She's completely reshaped her body. She looks about 20 years younger. That's not the point, but mm. she does. Um, she started training with her daughter, who lives in Mexico. Her daughter's a weightlifter, and it's such a remarkable transformation, not just in her body, but in her mm. health and her mind. And it's so lovely. Her, all her posts are really positive and upbeat. She's that woman that if you're thinking, "Oh my God, I can't do any exercise today," I just have a quick look at what. Joan's been doing in mm. often she's posts with her with these lovely Mexican weightlifters behind oh. her <laughs> topless and tanned well that helps what spotting her as they call it taking oh, the weights so she... yes yes <laughs> and she just looks really really lovely and this chance to lead a more adventurous life she's just grasped it at 70 yeah. which I think you know would be wonderful oh wow that's what we're aiming for so but we uh recently discovered that there are young women out there who think of us as their Jones <laughs> This was a revelation, wasn't it? It was, yes, because we I were mean, invited. We were invited onto the Sherlock's podcast recently. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know about Sherlock's, it's this very fab and sort of glammy website, podcast, newsletter that you can subscribe to and get lots of fashion, beauty and lifestyle info. And I've got lots of friends who look at it, but I think it's it's very much a sort of 30s, early 40s yeah. something place to go, isn't it? Well, yes, and they um, we went on their podcast and they sort of admitted they see us as these older, wiser women who've been round the block. They're Jones, as it were. Mm. And in this scenario, obviously, Trish, I'm Joan Collins and you're Joan Collins. <laughs> well. I'll take that. I'm quite happy with Because <laughs> I like the red lippy. You do. Uh, well, yeah, that's lippy. true. And their producer, who was... I mean, she was so young, wasn't she? She was so. I think we so looked old enough. Old yes. enough to be her mother. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, when we arrived, I think she was a bit confused about who the hell these two 
women talking dribble were, were going to be. But by the end of the chat, she was telling us, this is fascinating. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know about the perimenopause. I didn't know about teenagers and mums. It's made me think about, it was really lovely yes. to hear, wasn't it? It was. It really, really was. Well, there is so much that is brilliant about this midlife business, isn't there? I mean, we had such a lovely post on the marvellous second act that awaits women from one of our Facebook group members who explained how awful her menopause symptoms had been and how she felt she was fading away, losing confidence, feeling tired, old, fed up, all of those things. But she decided to reframe the whole thing, didn't she? Yes, it was a really cheering post. Actually, I'm going to keep it anonymous in case she doesn't want her name shared. But it was a cheering post. And I I read it on a morning when I was thinking, oh, for God's sake, what's the point of today? And it really perked me up. She said, I had allowed the menopause to get hold of me because I didn't want to embrace this new phase of my life. Owning my menopause, living in the present, accepting the changes, brackets, not easy, and getting the right help, brackets, really not easy, allowed me to figure out who I am now and what I want to achieve in this next chapter of my life life my midlife crisis crescendoed as a result of hitting menopause but it was also the catalyst that allowed me to reflect on my past examine my choices understand why I followed rightly or wrongly the path I did and therefore be able to map out a clear plan for my future at the peak of my despondency I believed brackets and felt quite normal thinking this that my best years were well and truly over but I changed my attitude using style and clothes and I reinvented myself for the first time in my 50s I'm excited about my future because I know the best years are ahead of me that's so lovely to read isn't it definitely it really is and I am hoping that one day those Sheerlux readers, um, they'll get to be 50 and they'll be saying, look at Lorraine and Trish there in their 90s, still producing that ridiculous podcast, <laughs> wearing their leotard, <laughs> lifting weights the size of small children above their heads. Oh, well, as long as we've got um, handsome men behind us to spot us, that would be... <laughs> I don't know if we can say that. I don't know if we'll get cancelled for that, but yes, oh, that's my dream. I that's think they list. will. But in the meantime, we do need to get on with today's show. We're turning agony aunts again to answer dilemmas from our private Facebook group, from our friends, from people we know, using the knowledge we've learned from all the experts we've interviewed. And there's some interesting topics to unpick today. And I, I can't wait to get into the one about the annoying hairdresser, for starters. Yes, I feel like you have some uh, forthright thoughts on that, young <laughs> Trish. After we've done that little bit of jibber-jabber, we are going to be interviewing another of midlife's energetic go-getters, the author and travel writer, Kathy Lett. Now, she is a woman, Trish, who knows more famous people than me. Can you imagine that? (laughs) I bet she doesn't name drop as much as you do. Well, I don't know. Well, should we try Australian. her? She's we'll try more her. polite than me yes. around the showing off situation. I once went round her house and mm-hmm. uh, Danny Minogue was in the lounge. She's just turned 50 this week, Danny Minogue. Oh, my goodness. And Danny was having a cup of tea on the sofa and Gordon Brown was in the garden having a glass of wine. <laughs> I mean, what wow. a thing, eh? A um, but today she is here to tell us a love story, really. It's oh. so adorable. You might think it was a plot of one of her novels. Yes. Well, Kathy is here from our future, isn't she? Because she's actually a decade ahead of us. She's between us, mid between us and the Jones, I think. Um, And I'm hoping our chat with her will fuel our ideas for the adventures or misadventures yet to come. Shall we get started? Yes, let's do it. Back by popular demand, it's dear Lorraine and Trish time, in which we are putting on our Agony Aunt hats, pearls, cashmere jumpers, or whatever else it is that Agony Aunts wear. And we're opening up our heaving 
post bag, imaginary heaving post bag. Once again, it's heaving, answer... it's heaving Trish. <laughs> it's more We're like bombarded. a digital, digital heaving I post bag. Marion for a while, um, no. our, our biggest hater, but uh, anyway, continue. Oh, we're going to be answering some dilemmas. Um, and I'm going to kick off with the aforementioned hairdresser conundrum, because this was actually from a friend of mine who says, my hairdresser comes to my house about four times a year to do my cut and highlights, which is very convenient for me. She's always been very chatty, which can be a bit annoying, but she does a great job, so I don't mind too much. However, on the last two visits, she kept on talking about not having the COVID vaccine and how it was all a big old conspiracy theory. I tried to give my point of view and why it's important to have the vaccine, steer the conversation away, but she just wouldn't stop. I'm due another appointment next month, which I've already booked with her, but I don't think I can face it. What should I do? I think you're going to have a very straightforward, blunt answer for this, Lorraine, aren't you? Is it she's annoyed about her being chatty? Because that would really annoy me <laughs> as well. Or is it the vaccine? It's the vaccine. I think it's I the think vaccine. She can bye put up bye with the hairdresser, don't we? Because that's just um, absolute silliness. The, the point is, when you get to this stage, particularly in life, you want your values to be mm. aligned with the people in your world. And the values are not aligned here. I mean, apart from the silliness of being um, anti the vaccine, the values aren't aligned. So I think she has to do what Jennifer Aniston did recently. Yeah. And she was quoted as saying, I have dumped some of my people <laughs> because of this con- vaccination oh, conversation. Gosh. If you yeah. haven't had it and you're going to put me and my family at risk, then you can't come through yes. my front door. Because I don't think... You can have rational conversations that are kind and helpful. And I don't think you can change people's mind. I think you have to be absolutely firm and just say no and leave no room for negotiation. Trish, this is like you and the lemonade. Oh, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. You explain what happened with the lemonade. Well, so um, a lovely waitress came up to us trying to uh, offer us homemade lemonade that was part of what they were serving. Now, I don't like lemonade, so but she was very sweet. And so she said to Trish and I, would you like some lemonade? Um, And Trish said, oh, and this was about the fourth time we've been offered this lemonade. Trish said, oh, well, why don't you wait till a bit later? Because I'm just going to have this drink and then maybe a bit later. And I just said, I don't like lemonade, no. <laughs> and I thought, why don't you just say I don't like lemonade? It's a very simple... Oh, I know, but that is, I think that's the fundamental difference between, between you and I. I yes. Think, you know. But, you know, it's just our different way. But, you you, uh, you know, I see your point of view, but I hope, I hope you see mine too, my, my way no. of doing things. But I my do. thoughts on the hairdresser conundrum, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's like, you know, bring it to an end because... I think with this whole anti-vaxxing thing, if it's someone you care about, it's a good, really good friend, it's a family member, you might have to find a way to kind of listen, ask questions, and then just move on. And I would probably question where they're getting their news sources from, because it's so often it's like, well, it's on social media. And it's like, yeah, but where's the trusted source? Where's it coming from? You are never going to win with them, but you can, you know, at least then try and change the subject and agree to differ and move on. But if it's someone you don't know, I ended up I did this um, residential course last year and ended up coming back on a train with a woman (laughs) from the course who started anti-vaxxing conspiracy theorying me on this bloody train I was like oh my god and I just had to say look I'm not going to talk I don't want to talk about this sorry and then I've never seen her again I'm never going to see her again it's so uncomfortable and then with the hairdresser thing I think it's very difficult if you have someone come into your house because it becomes a much more personal 
relationship, doesn't it? And that is trust. Different. And there's trust, but they can see your house, they can see your things, your kids might be coming in and out. And it sort of takes the relationship over into slightly different dimension. Because if I think if you go into a, a you know, a proper hairdressing salon they will be trained won't they in body yeah. language and how to deal with clients and you can very you know easily when you get to the hairdressing salon saying oh I've been looking forward to this I just want an hour of peace and quiet I'm going to doze off and then they know don't they or you can go on your phone but if you've got someone who just blathers on the whole time oh I don't know I just couldn't be doing with I that so I think it's time to would you ghost or would you just say would you just cancel the appointment and ghost or do you say actually I'm uh, well hairdresser you'd know what I would say don't you I'd say I, find, I think your views are absolutely ridiculous refer I'd refer her to some reliable news sources and scientific mm. information and say look you know um come back when you decide we just don't have the same opinion you know this is yeah. not an experimental thing this is you know my health my children's health my family's health mm. so you know as you say if it's in the family and someone believes that then you're going to have to work around it but um I think you're going to have to let your hairdresser go. I think let her go. I'm sorry. Those blonde highlights are just not worth it. No. Right. Now, here is one from Nicola, which I think many of us can relate to in one way or another. How do you cope when older parents who expect the ideal daughter, but we're actually rubbish at parenting? How do you break loose from the fairy tale role your older parents have cast for you and start to act according to how life really is? Well, I mean, that's a strange one, isn't it? Because you do want grandparents to still be in touch with their children. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, you know, you can't keep them out of their life or, or actually I think you can't be that critical of grandparents either because it's not fair. They have a very separate um, mm. relationship. But often grandparents from another time try and impose a similar kind of mastery, as it were, or judgmental values over grandchildren um, like they do. So you just have to be aware and curious around that, I think. Mm. I think you have to, again, it's a bit like stating your values again, isn't it? Your values are your values. Your boundaries are your boundaries. And you have to kind of yeah. communicate that without upsetting everybody i tell you who's really good on this tanya byron is really good on this oh, yeah lots of advice in her books on this what do you think Trish? well i thought because i thought it was more about her relationship with her parents not it's mm. not about the grandchildren and I, I i was kind of thinking about this and it's difficult isn't it because as children we're psychologically conditioned to want to be close to our parents and to get their approval so this is a kind of thing that starts happening from a very yeah. young age and you can carry it obviously over into adulthood but you know you have to get to a point where you realize you can't be yourself if you make all your choices in life based on what you think your parents want about you want their approval you're never going to be your authentic self right. are you and they they just have to realize that and I think we all disappoint our parents at some point our children will probably all disappoint us it's just it's just how life works right um but you're not responsible for your parents happiness and our kids are not responsible for our happiness so it's it's kind of trying to see the relationship in a different way and it is it comes back to really what we've said about the hairdressing thing as well you can still have a relationship if you've got conflicting worldviews or lifestyles you've got different lifestyles but you know it doesn't have to ruin your relationship but they've just got to understand to your point Lorraine your values and that yeah. they might be different but you um, do have to theirs. communicate them and that's the painful bit of yeah. this process isn't it you have to say you know please don't talk about yeah I have friends who's um in-laws are quite um vocal about food around their, mm. <laughs> around their teenagers especially teenage girls and and she has had to say 
we don't want that conversation in yeah. the room. So please don't talk about that. Don't talk about weight. Don't talk about, you know, it's yeah. an old fashioned view you have. So, yeah. you know, anything is fine, but we're not going to, we don't really want to yeah. have that. So you do have to be brave enough to communicate it, yeah. I think. I mean, it's- and also to sit just one side and think, why do I feel like this? Yeah. Why are they, why is this causing me? Maybe I should just not let me get upset about yeah. this and let them be who they are and I yeah. can be who because I Because it sounds like there's there's definitely resentment in there and, I, I, and I'm not surprised she's sort of, you know, resentful mm. of, of these parents who clearly just have never approved of her and always feel disappointed they, about her. They might her, have felt her. that about their parents yes, as well. So exactly. it's always worth saying this is all, parenting is an evolution of yeah. skills, isn't it, as well? Yeah. So what does her mum think about her mum and how she would have tried not to do the things that she felt didn't yeah. work for but them I think as well. resenting resenting your parents ultimately you're it's you the only person you're hurting is you because yeah. they clearly don't get it so I suppose it's a question of you just minimal contact whatever but you just yeah, have boundaries. to tell yourself this is this is what makes me happy. This is my life. This is how I want to live my life. I am allowed to live my life in the way that I want. It's not their life and um, move on. So the next dilemma is from Jane, who has this quandary. She says, I'm thinking of taking the plunge and joining a gym as I've tried and failed to motivate myself at home to do exercise. I used to love going to the gym in my 20s and early 30s before I had my children. But stepping back inside one as a slightly overweight late 40 something is terrifying. Um, I had a look around and everyone looks so young and fit. And I can't imagine being brave enough to exercise with one of their personal trainers, which I thought would be a good way to kick things off for me. Help. Oh, poor Jane. Yes. We've done this um, quite a few times with Amanda Seab, who's our best personal fitness guest um, around this. Now, Jane, stop stop worrying, first of all, because that is actually you distracting yourself from going to the gym because you're just mm. giving yourself a list of reasons why you can't go, which is sort of saying, and that's why I can't go. And and you're you're making them valid and they're not really valid because you can just ignore everyone in the gym at this stage of life. Um, but it's a, I think it's about starting small. If you don't want to go mm-hmm. into the gym, think about outside gyms, quite a few of them around. If you don't want to do do that one-to-one then go in a group find some mm-hmm. friends join a, a local group there's lots on Facebook or do something like yoga so I went to a beginner yoga class the other day young Trish mm-hmm. you're not a beginner let, though you're not a beginner. I'm not I just wanted I haven't been for a while so I, don't, yeah. and, uh, I didn't want you know didn't want those girls in Lululemon doing crocos <laughs> with their arms wrapped around their asses and things like that anyway so I went in and I was the youngest by 20 years I think Ooh. Very and good. we did it really slowly they were much better mm-hmm. than me these people but I could see that this was a really nice environment I felt very relaxed so I think just pick yeah a, a gentler class and just start slow and small yeah. well I have to say in my gym that I go to a lot of the classes are taken by women in their 40s 50s and yes. 60s the instructors yeah. are older because if you think about when people started becoming instructors it was back in the kind of 80s and, and, and yeah. 90s and they're, they're all still going so I did a body pump class yesterday and I would say there were a couple of women in their 30s yes my strength you know bones strength all of that and um and I would advise I did ask the instructor she said well look just go early to the class talk to the instructor get make sure you kind of know what you're doing maybe you might go into a you know sit set yourself up in one part of the room that you're you don't feel so self-conscious and just get the trainer to kind of talk you through what's going to happen in the class and reassure you and you know if you've got any questions you can 
do all of that before the, the session starts. And I think that will make you feel... Go with a friend. Go with a friend. Go with a friend. Go with a friend. Yeah. Habit stacking, that's what it is, isn't it, Trish? Once you've done it mm. once, it sets in your mind. Yeah, well, I think it's such a shame because, you know, one of the biggest things preventing women doing exercise is fear of being judged about their yeah. ability to, to do and the exercise. And teenage girls, actually. Parents and teenage girls. And, you know, and also some women feel like, oh, it makes it look like they're putting themselves first if they're like mums of young children. Yeah. Yeah. apparently in the survey and you just think that's just it's not right it's not right right this one very quickly because i think it's really important and i've got a very short answer to this one <laughs> it's from sonia i just had the pocket money allowance discussion with my mm. daughter her teenage daughter which ended in tears i've upped what i was giving her with the idea she could buy things she wants but gets more from me for bigger items such as clothes coats and shoes but that is not enough for her now she wants her own cash to buy clothes trouble is she has expensive taste mm. and the fact that whatever I give her it won't be enough I've offered to stick with the current allowance but buy her clothes separately which will need some advanced browsing to tell me what she wants but apparently this isn't acceptable to her and I don't know what to do next I feel like I'm already over generous as when she's with me I buy her makeup and things and I thought that was the point of the allowance so Mm. I don't know what to do what do I do now oh Sonia, you do nothing. (laughs) You do nothing, Sonia. This is not about the clothing allowance or the money or the extra thing. There's so much more, I feel, we don't know for sure, and we're not agony aren't experts or or therapists, but I feel that this is a question with a lot more going on Mm -hmm. underneath for that mum and daughter. And the simplest way to deal with it, perhaps, given the experts I have spoken to, is to do nothing and let your daughter come to you with what she thinks she should do. If she wants these things, then you can work out some way of doing that, but she has to lead this yeah. is a little bit of you trying to fix things mm, for well I mean I think it, you know as well managing money managing a budget appreciating the value of yeah. money earning money that is one of the most important life lessons that we can teach our children and that's what you are doing and you are doing it in the right way and unfortunately being a parent as we know is about making decisions that mean our children aren't going to like us for you know yeah. a week or two Not a popularity contest yeah Trish. but we have actually there was this was on the Facebook group and there was some really good advice I I felt from Mm. other group members so Joe said my two are older now but my youngest has expensive tastes and likes her nails done and brows and lashes etc but I said as I couldn't afford those things for myself I work full-time and have a decent job I wasn't paying for her to have them at my expense you know look at what you give yourself first before you start feeling bad I explained that life can be hard and isn't always fair it wasn't easy to do but you have to decide what you were able to give without compromising yourself I agree and also you know we always say if you if that's the things you want that we can't afford then maybe you can ask for money towards that for birthday and Christmas presents from everybody yes. else maybe just come up with a plan on what yeah. or except that you probably can't have all the things that you yeah. want and what's and I do oh. think stepping back and letting them sort it out is um the best way and one more tip that. from Anna she says that her son has very expensive taste so she gives him entry-level cash towards the entry item level. so they'll buy like a basic level rather than say a, a Nike trainer and then he has to work to pay for the rest yeah. of it so that's another way of approaching it I suppose yes without your babysitting all of that yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I think that was very helpful advice from us, don't you? I think we're the best <laughs> agony aunts that ever had an agony aunt podcast. Oh, I'm twiddling my pearls and cashmere jumper as we speak. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Our spirited and witty guest today published her first best-selling book at 19. Puberty Blues became an instant hit, and since then, her witty novels focusing on the lives of women, which have included Mad Cows, Fetal Attraction, Nip and Tuck, and How to Kill Your Husband, have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. She's one of the best-connected authors in London, often hosting star-studded dinner parties with such diverse guests as George Clooney, Nicole Kidman, Kylie Minogue, Gordon Brown, Julian Assange, Salman Rushdie, and Stephen Fry. The mum of two recently divorced her husband of 28 years, Jeffrey Robertson, a human rights lawyer who works for Reprieve. And in a plot twist you would never have foreseen, she found love again with a musician she met playing his guitar under a tree in Regent's Park. She has three honorary doctorates, was the writer in residence at the Savoy, is mother to Georgie, who works for the Labour Party, and Jules, an autistic actor in Holby City. Her latest novel is called HRT, Husband Replacement Therapy, and she's a vivacious advocate for what she calls adventure before dementia. It's time to meet one of Midlife's most energetic and endearing crusaders. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Kathy Lett. G'day. I want to hear you say that to me. G'day, Kath. G'day, Kath. <laughs> I don't like to do it because my Australian one's not great. I'm better at Welsh um, and Cornish, obviously, because that's where obviously. I'm from. Right. Now, we have been friends for many years, and I often forget because you are officially a British citizen, um, but you are Australian. So let's go back to Sydney, where it all started. Young Kathy, one of four sisters, left school at 16. How did you end up in London in this glamorous, successful life all these years later? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I left school at 16. I always say that the only examination I've ever passed is my cervical smear test. (laughs) And um, I am an autodidact. It means self-taught. Obviously, I taught myself. And I left because I grew up in this very tribal community of the survey boys. And they're incredibly sexist and vile. I mean, as an example of how sexist they were, they used to get us to cut their names out in paper and then sticky tape them to our stomach. So when we sunbaked, we get a tan tattoo in the shape yeah. of their name. So if ever I get cancer, I'll have this melanoma called Bruce, you know, <laughs> like a Bruce X to me to get rid of it. And um, I wanted to write a, a book about these guys, really to write it for my other surfy girlfriends so they could realise that they were more than just a life support system to a pair of breasts. 
And I just found school so boring because, you know, they spend all that time teaching you to talk and then all the rest of the time telling you to shut up. And then I realised when I wrote this book, Peabody Blues, which was a big hit in Australia, it's kind of a cult book. It's like, yeah, you were so young as well to have such a big hit. You were famous really quickly, weren't you? Yeah, it was really kind of scary going from non-entity to overnight notoriety you know I just I had to fasten on my psychological seatbelt for a bit of a bumpy ride but I also thought what a great profession to be a writer you get to work in your jammies all day you get to have affairs and call it research and (laughs) think heavily on the job what's not to love about that so I just kept writing and then I met my future husband Jeff Robertson who's a human rights lawyer and he was based in London so I gave up my home and hemisphere for a a man (laughs) even though as a feminist that's not in our um, guidebook (laughs) ended up living in London and of course the great thing about living in Britain is that you conquer the great indoors Mm -hmm. yeah museums the theater the galleries and also fantastic women I have so many brilliant friends I've met living here that I just I just can't leave you. I keep waiting for you to deport me, Lorraine. I keep waiting till I've I've gone off off the annoyometer. You boomerang me back to Botany Bay. Well, we're pleased that you're you're not going anywhere because fast forward to you're 62 now. Is that right? 62. Yeah, so absolutely 62. 62. Well, it is 62 because you're in a new relationship with a younger man. And it sounds like you met him in this very charming, old fashioned way, especially when we're living in this world of dating apps and Tinder and all that nonsense. So tell us what happened. How did you meet the lovely Brian? The way I met my boyfriend, it's ridiculously romantic. It's it's what they call in the movies a cute meet. And mm. You know, as a satirist, a kind of um, sardonic feminist satirist, it's just sort of too pathetic to even really talk about. My boyfriend's a classical guitarist and he was playing Bach in the park under a tree. And I just went up, the music was so beautiful. I just went up and started talking to him and then I just could not stop talking to him. And now I talk to him every morning on my pillow. But um, what I would say, I've been married twice and I've had two fantastic, brilliant alpha male husbands but let me tell you, beta is better. I now have a beta male. Mm-hmm. What is a beta male? I don't. I often get confused between alpha and beta. What's a beta male? A beta male um, is a nurturer. You know, so my boyfriend, a young, oh, he's younger than me, obviously. He adores me. He doesn't bore me, and he does all my chores for me. <laughs> he shops. Tick, tick, he, tick. he cooks. He cleans. It's it's. A, you know how feminists always said what we need, really need is a wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, is a wife but not that he's wimpy in any way I mean you know what you really want is a, a man who's beta out of bed and a little bit alpha in bed that's the perfect combination <laughs> <laughs> but I also think you know when when I give talks in schools to young women about you know life and the future and everything I've started to say to them be very careful about the man you choose to settle down with because if you choose an alpha man if you're also alpha when your child is sick or, you know, anyone has to step step up to the domestic sphere, it's always the woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if is. you marry a beta male, he, he takes will take a lot of that burden off you so your your career can keep, you know, on the ascendancy. So, you know, I'm I'm big, big on beta at the moment. Beta, beta, beta. And, and raising beta males is one of our, I guess, one of our duties as well, isn't it? Very well said. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So if I'm a single woman listening um, and we have one of the big things, transitions that does happen, and it's incredibly common, is women get to midlife and decide that, you know, my children have gone, this relationship isn't really for me anymore. And there's a lot of divorce and separation um, and change. 
But heading out into that world, that single world, as Trish says, with all these online dating apps and things, what advice do you think or guidance would you have for a woman who's thinking, well, I'm just never going to meet anyone. I'm ne- I don't know who I am. I'm never going to meet anyone. And how will this sex thing be now that I'm older right. and different and my body's different? What, what have you learned um, doing this? Well, first of all, I would say that I mean, I got divorced from Jeff a few years ago. Divorce is not a failure. It's just a change. And, you know, divorce rates are incredibly high right now. And the two peak times are when the last child finishes school and when the husband retires. And the majority of divorces in Britain are initiated by women because, you know, marriages last so long now. I mean, from honeymoon to tomb can be like 80 years. That's a long time to find someone's anecdotes interesting. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> a long so dishwasher would, arguing. Right. So first I would say it's not a failure. Um, you know, Jeff and I have two exceptional children. When that, What a success story that we've raised these great kids together. We're still really good friends. We talk all the time. But, um, you know, it's hard to go through a divorce, obviously. But if it, if you're feeling that it's not working, be brave and, and do it because the second act can be so sensational. But if you are going, if you are single and ready to mingle, I think my advice would be be absolutely honest and upfront about what you want. There's right. no time to be subtle right now. <laughs> and, and, you know, get a dimmer switch, greatest beauty aid, <laughs> keep the lights low. That's good. <laughs> but I would also say don't succumb to cosmetic surgery because a lot of women get divorced and then, you know, like I don't see them for a few weeks and I suddenly see these breasts coming down the high street. They've got their kind of own, their own postcode. You know, and they've got those lips, those child-bearing mm, yeah. lips, mm. you know, where, which you know what that is, collagen. They take the fat out of their bottoms and inject it into their lips so they're literally talking out of their ass <laughs> and then you see them at the gym and they've waxed all their all their body oh, hair off and yeah. I'm like why why are you trying to look like a pub- prepubescent girls I like my pubic hair it's like having a little pet in my pants you know <laughs> my own pedenda could be awarded national park status <laughs> but it's about confidence isn't it because your body changes so I mean mine has and, and you're thinking well I have a new body and now I need to find a new man. What kind of man or, or whatever partner you're looking for? How do you work that out in your head? What questions are you asking yourself? Um, well, for me, it's someone who's kind and makes me laugh and can cook. <laughs> but um, also, you know, when I'm talk, talk, going back to this idea of cosmetic surgery, you've got to say to yourself also, why would you want a man who wants you because you're silicon from tonsils to toenail? You wouldn't yeah. want a man like that. So just be really clear and upfront about what you want and who you are. Mm. Get the dimmer switch and do your pelvic floor exercises. Oh my, <laughs> my god, pelvic, pelvic floor, floor. <laughs> is strong now. I could suck the, the shag pile carpet up. Yeah, I'm worried <laughs> about that chair behind you. Yeah. <laughs> I could ping my boyfriend right across London. You know, <laughs> trampoline, trampoline up there. <laughs> Oh, it's so brilliant to hear someone being so incredibly upbeat and excited about about growing older, getting older, aging, the whole process. It's it's amazing. It's really because we just don't hear that enough. So that is brilliant. But have there ever been times during midlife where it can get a bit tough and you can kind of maybe lose yourself in everything that's going on? Obviously, for women, life is in two acts and the Mm -hmm. trick is surviving the interval that mm-hmm. menopause will face, which is truly horrific. Suddenly you're having your own weather. You know, you sweat so much. And when I hit my menopause in the, in the early 50s, whatever, my father just had just died. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, when you lose your, that first loss of a parent is absolutely devastating. And 
and I lost my confidence, you know, which was part of the whole menopause process. So the best thing I ever did was get HRT. I cannot recommend that highly enough for all women. It's like rocket fuel. And you have to remember in the scale of things, the evolutionary terms, the menopause yeah. is a new phenomenon because once everybody was dead by like 32 and we know that estrogen is the female friendly hormone. It keeps you juicy, it keeps you happy, it keeps you healthy. So why not give it to your body and keep a sense of humour? I mean, God is definitely a bloke. When you think of all the things women go through from when you're first a teenager and you get taken hostage by your hormones once a month then there's you know pregnancy where everything swells to you know wrestler proportions and then there's you know childbirth where you stretch your vagina the customary like five kilometers <laughs> then there's mastitis then there's the menopause and then just when everything goes quiet you know what happens of course you grow a beard how can you say hello you can make a macrame hanging basket arrangement with what's going on here so I think, you know, women have a lot to whinge about, but we don't tend to whinge, do we? I always think laugh and the whole world laughs with you, cry and you get salt in your champers, which we don't want. Yeah. So <laughs> just keep having a good laugh with your girlfriends. That's that's probably my top tip. Did you ever feel lost at all in the bit between the first act and the second act? Totally. Before I got on the HRT, for sure, I really did feel lost and, and what was my identity now and who was I? My kids were growing up. My marriage was not sustaining me. Yeah, and it's very, very hard, that shift into the second gear. But, oh, my God, it's so fabulous. No one ever really talks about what well, you do on the, on your brilliant podcast, but the other side of menopause is so liberating. No pregnancy, no periods. Also, women are brought up to be decorative and demure. You know, we know that if a man and a woman start talking at the same time, the woman always pulls back. We're so polite. But because as you as you go through the menopause, your estrogen drops and your testosterone comes up. So you get a little bit more bolshy, a little bit more selfish, a little bit more like a bloke, actually. <laughs> and for the first time ever, you don't care what people think about you. It's the most liberating time of a woman's life. And I think you, most women come into their true selves at that time because, you know, it's just you no longer have to be the do the caring and the sharing and the nurturing and the knitting. So mm -hmm. girls look forward to it. It is absolutely friggin' fabulous. But don't waste it. You know, my whole motto is adventure before dementia, carpe diem, like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't wait. Like if not now, when? And I hate the term anti-aging. I mean, yeah, anti-aging, well. pro-aging. Yeah. I mean, it's better than the alternative. Well, it's a privilege, isn't it, to age? That's the thing. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, let, let people read between the lines on your face, you know, the wrinkle lines. It's all there your whole life, the, the books, the babies, the hours of fun-loving flirtation. <laughs> you know, be proud of those wrinkles. I am. Yeah. Well, so on the fun-loving flirtation front, the other thing that we talk about and we get lots of questions about on the Facebook is that taking your clothes off in front of a new partner, male or female, for the first time. We had Rosie Green on who wrote a big book about divorce and she was talking about that how, how, how she had to psych herself into taking her clothes off in front of a new man, having only taken her clothes off in front of the same man for 30 years. How did that feel for you and what advice have you got for someone facing that moment? 
Well, if you're with the right guy and you're feeling excited enough, you won't have time. Everyone's to clothes worry. are off. You won't be having time to worry about how he's going to think when you take your clothes off. And also, remember that he's probably nervous about how he looks. You know, I would, I would just turn it back onto how he's feeling. Yeah, and as I said, Dibber Switch, greatest sex aid, beauty aid, known to womankind. <laughs> if you remember what I was saying earlier about no longer caring what people think, mm. just keep saying that to yourself. Good sex is about feeling comfortable in your skin. You know, the more relaxed you are the more orgasms you're going to have and definitely the best things in life are free which are laughing talking walking oxygen and orgasms and oxygen and orgasms are um, pretty similar actually no big deal unless you're not getting any so just remember that you know it's free it's fabulous and it keeps you young and healthy so yeah it's very good for your hair apparently orgasms we had a hair expert who said it makes Mm. your blood flow and your hair grows better didn't we yes Yes. your your hair's looking gorgeous (laughs) (laughs) and you should see the hair all over my body i just Yeah. Listen, your latest book, it's your 17th. Can you believe that? It's called HRT Husband Replacement Therapy. Very good. And it centers on a birthday speech that woman gives at her 50th. So I guess we're kind of guessing that maybe 50 was a turning point for you if you're focusing on that age. Do you want to tell us a bit about the book and also why 50? Well, I do all my research in a scientific in-depth fashion, which is over cocktails with girlfriends. (laughs) And when I was turning 50, I realised that a lot of my girlfriends were just not having sex with their husbands. You know, the more I d- delved into it, it was because they felt resentful and exhausted. Because even though we make up 50% of the workforce, we're still doing about 99% of all the housework and all the childcare. You know, and when, when you're a working mum and you've worked all day and then you come home at night and you have to defrost the chops and cook the dinner and find the lost sports kit and put the washing on and help with the homework and, you know, then do nag them about the teeth cleaning and the digital detox. And by the time you finally get into bed, the one thing you're fantasising about is sleep and then you get the hand, you get this hand <laughs> over the bed sheet, you know. I mean, men make horror movies called The Blob and The Thing. We, <laughs> we would make <laughs> The hair. <laughs> this guy. He hasn't talked to me all day or helped me around the house and he thinks I'm in the mood for love. I'm in the mood for running him through with a carving knife. <laughs> we've <laughs> all felt that. <laughs> what was that, Lorraine? I said we've all felt that, yeah. haven't we? That kind and, of, and, but he doesn't notice. You know, he's prodding away at your clitoris as though it's an elevator button. He's running late for a meeting. And you're like, just take the stairs, buddy. <laughs> So in the 10 years between 50 and 60, that's been, because I found 40 to 50, as you know, Kathleen, quite a challenge. I do. (laughs) In that 10 years between 50 and 60, what do you think you've learnt or what guidance do you think our listeners who are kind of approaching that could get from you? I would say the only way to get through that decade, which is full of so much change, hormonally, emotionally, mentally, in your living circumstances because your kids are leaving the family nest. Oh, it's a huge decade of change. The only way to get through it is to have a great laugh with your girlfriends. You know, I always say that your girlfriends are your human wonder bras, Mm -hmm. uplifting, supportive, (laughs) and making each other look bigger and better. And Lorraine and I have been each other's human wonder bras. Oh, my goodness. Apart from the walking, when you make me go from those, like, 5,000 miles an hour walk where I I can't (laughs) talk because they're so fast. I can't can't catch my bloody breath. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you have been an amazing support. You, I think also having older friends as well who've got that kind of psychological maturity through what they've been through has been phenomenally helpful. I mean, do you see your friends on a weekly basis? Because you have to make an effort to stay in touch, I think, don't you? But it's such a joyful effort. You know, what's not to love about seeing your girlfriend? I see at least one girlfriend every day, whether it's for a power walk or, in Lorraine's case, a quiet stroll. Um, through Regent Park, <laughs> or we go out and have a cocktail and swing from the chandelier with a toy boy between our teeth, you know. But just seeing your girlfriends, and there's a great male myth that women aren't funny, and I've heard this in every country I've been on book two in the world, where they'll say, oh, you say you write funny books, women aren't that funny. I think, why do some men still say that? I think they just terrified what it is we're being funny about, because when men, when women get together, we strip off to our emotional undies in about 3.6 seconds, and it's a psychological striptease that reveals all. And, you know, my male friends are very funny. I say they have what I call it the black belt and tongue foo. You know, they can fire off one-liners. But women never do that. Our humour is much more confessional, cathartic, candid, anecdotal, and it's really friggin' funny. I mean, when you're on, when we go on those girls' nights out, Lorraine, we have to yes. get hospitalised from hilarity, don't we? <laughs> well, we just can't stop laughing. It's, you know, it can, your cheeks are kind of burning with laughter, aren't they? And, and it's so therapeutic. But there's also comes a time in the nights where you're all laughing then suddenly you're all hugging and crying as well. Yeah. <laughs> because it can be very honest. Um, and, you know, anthropologists back up this. They say that, you know, we know that laughter is really, really so good for you. Biologists say it keeps you young, et cetera. But anthropologists say that women in all cultures on the planet laugh more often than men, especially in all female groups, because it's a survival mechanism for us. You know, we are the underdogs in the world. And if you can laugh at something, it takes helps take the sting out of it. And also just to know that you're not alone. And if I think if I have any gift as a writer at all, it's putting down on paper what women, you know, say when there's no men around and also sometimes putting down on paper what they're thinking but not necessarily saying out loud. <laughs> so I, would, that, I think I wouldn't have got through my darker days without my girlfriends for sure, you know. So just keep those human wonder bras. and Keep each other buoyant, uplifted. Let your cups runneth over with love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's oh. the way to get through oh. that. Okay. Now let, let's talk about you as a as a parent and a mother. You've got two wonderful grown up children, and actually one of your most moving novels, but also a, a very funny one, is the Boy Who Fell to Earth, where you chronicle a mother's really sort of tender relationship with her son. The reviews of the books recognise that your your own relationship really with your son Jules, because he has autism. Yeah. Yes, He's on yeah. the autism spectrum. Yeah. So tell us about how that has been parenting Jules and your relationship with him now because he's very successful look it's much better now autism has been demystified a little bit thanks to people like me writing novels about mm -hmm. the condition and, and whatever but when he was first diagnosed 27 years ago it, it that was a diagnosis that dragged you down into the dark mm -hmm. I mean autism was the a word and it was terribly upsetting and isolating I mean I often felt that I hadn't given birth to Jules but I'd found him under a spaceship and I was kind of raising him as my own it's like trying to put together a giant jigsaw without the benefit of the colored picture on the, on the box mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I think when you get a diagnosis like that, parents go through various stages. The first stage you go through is, is denial, where you bankrupt yourself, seeing every medical expert in the country. I hate to think how many doctors' children I've now put through university, you know. And then the second one you go through is guilt, because as mothers, you know, your guilt gland throbs all the time anyway, doesn't it? 
Mm. When you have a child with special needs, you think, was it something I ate? Was it something I drank? Was it that one glass of wine in the final trimester? You know, if only I'd feng shui'd my aura like Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, everything would be mm-hmm. fine. And then you go through a stage of feeling a bit sorry for yourself where you probably drink way too much Chardonnay. <laughs> and then eventually you just start to think, well, this is the unique little person I've been given and I've just got to do my best by him. And what Jules has taught me is that there's no such thing as normal and abnormal. There's ordinary and extraordinary. And mm-hmm. Jules is extraordinary. And people with autism have a literal, lateral, tangential logic, which is truly original and special. Mm-hmm. So you've got to try and concentrate on, on, turn the negatives into a positive and concentrate on how interesting and how exceptional they are. And I heard a guy, a scientist, an autistic scientist, talking on the radio on Radio 4, and he was saying how, he, 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 you know, with his autism, he said, well, you people think we're mad because we don't make small talk, we don't make eye contact. He said, we think you're mad. He said, the amount of time you spend being nice to people you don't even like. He said, if it weren't for autistic people, humans would never have got out of the cave. And I thought, he's right. You know, so just try and embrace the positives. But I'm not glossing over it. It is really hard raising Mm -hmm. a child who's different. Um, First of all, getting help is a postcode lottery. And the government set up these bureaucratic speed bumps to slow down parents' progress. And schooling nightmare. I mean, Mm -hmm. putting a kid with special needs into a mainstream school, I think, is as pointless as giving a fish a bath. Mm -hmm. And then there's bullying. I mean, I don't know if you both know anyone with a child with special needs yeah. to you probably do. yeah yeah the yeah. bullying's the worst thing I mean oh. when Jules was nine he came home with a sign on his back saying kick me I'm a retard and saying oh. to him, what's a retard oh, Why sh- you me retard? Yeah. I mean for any mother you might as well have just wrenched my heart out of my yeah. chest thrown it on the ground and stomped on it and it makes you very overprotective you know as he got older as a teenager I would never let him out the door without a list of instructions longer than war and peace you know and enough in his backpack to set up a comfortable wilderness homestead but how will they how will you know if they'll ever cope in the outside world if you don't let them out into it so Mm -hmm. you know it's tricky and it will always be tricky because I'll never be able to cut the psychological umbilical cord it's hard now as I see my girlfriends they're free they've finished their parenting they're climbing up Everest and going down the Amazon and I can do a bit of that but of Mm -hmm. course I'll always be his carer so Mm -hmm. you you have to try not to be jealous (laughs) yeah I think also what would be interesting for listeners going through a similar thing is when you have a child with special needs like Jules with autism and I know this concerns you at times is what happens when they have to be independent when you know they leave home and as you get older who will look after Jules, what, what have you learned about this kind of later stage? Because there's a lot of women, I would imagine, listening whose um, children are now teenagers and obviously they're facing that kind of chance of them going to university or, you know, p- taking jobs. I mean, Jules has got a fantastic job as an actor on Holby oh. City, but how do you manage that as they leave and become independent? Um, well, first of all, it's if you are anyone listening who is raising a child with special needs, the only two bits of advice I would give one is build up their self-esteem because all day they're told they're wrong, they're stupid, they're out of sync. So their self-esteem sinks down lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line, which is quite low. Mm-hmm. And also feed their obsessions. They're very obsessional people. You know, um, they have a lot of OCD. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're and br- quite often brilliant brains. I mean, often like, Jules is like Wikipedia with a pulse, you know. But feed the obsession because you never know where it will take them. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's igneous rock formations or, I don't know, Amazonian 
you know, moth wing fluctuations, Tibetan nose fluting, whatever. And, you know, Jules wanted to be an actor. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, how do you put the artistic into autistic? I just couldn't see that working. But then he said to me, well, Mum, you know, I'm acting every day. I'm acting trying to be normal. And I thought, what a brilliant thing to say. So I put him in acting classes and I used to go and watch him and I'd think, you're really good. And then I thought, oh, no, it's the mum goggles. You know how you see it? Exactly. You know, then he got he, he, he got cast in a couple of little movies and then he won an award and then he got cast in Holby City. And he's been in Holby City now for about on and off for about seven years or something. And I must say, when I see him, you know, doing so well on Holby, and I think back to how he was bullied at school, I do allow myself a little moment of life no. coaching, you know. Absolutely, you should. And what about your relationship with your daughter? Because we were actually earlier on in the show, we were talking about a dilemma somebody had about their teenage daughter just being pretty awful, basically, because mm-hmm. they can go through that phase. But they do come out of it, don't they? And you tell us about your relationship with her. Well, I think for all mums, you know, mums and teenage daughters have more wars breaking out than mm-hmm. in the Middle East. You know? mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder why it is. But I think it's because they have to define themselves by breaking away from the mother, you know, and I think it's that. But, of course, from when they get taken hostage by their hormones at 13, oh, it's, it, it is really grim. I wrote about it in a book called To Love, Honour and Betray, and the character in there, well, I based some of it on my real life because when Georgie was about 13, you know, it felt like living with the Taliban. I wasn't allowed yeah. to laugh, sing, dance, wear short skirts. Yeah. I remember I was going out one day, Lorraine remembers this. Yeah. You, I think. And I had on a pink leopard skin miniskirt. Yes, definitely and, me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going down there and I thought, I'll creep out because if she sees what I'm wearing, she won't approve. So I was creeping out. I got to the front door and I went, Arr! and she heard the door open. She came running down the stairs you know, running up behind me, she said, what are you wearing? Go back to your room and change. Oh. You're not going out dressed like that. Safi and Eddie thing, isn't I know, it? <laughs> I know. And I remember I said, but surely my legs are okay. I can still wear a short skirt. She said, it's not the legs, Mum. The skirt doesn't go with your face. <laughs> oh, brutal. Low self-esteem is hereditary. You get it from your teenage daughters. But, of course, mm. you know, by 18, they're out the other side. And mm-hmm. She's the most brilliant young woman. We're really close and I absolutely adore her. But in if I have got a survival tip, because in To Love, Honour and Betray, when the mother's having these, these, these fights with her daughter, one day her daughter kicks her and hits her and says, I wish you'd just die. Oh. <laughs> a big drag on a cigarette, a big gulp of wine and says, I'm doing my best, darling. <laughs> That's my top tip. When you doubt, just keep drinking. Oh, excellent, excellent. They know the absolute place to poke you, don't mm. they? Someone asked me at the weekend what um, my daughters thought of the book and when I first handed it to them, actually physically, and um, one of them picked it up and sniffed it and said, well, I think it smells nice. Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> I know, it's so mean, I know. So you've just handed in... I would say literally today. <laughs> Another well, a little bit late. Yeah, I'm handing in later today when I get off. Can you give us a tiny clue what that's about and what we can look forward to? Well, I want to invent a new genre because in most novels, women my age, you know, they're either wilting away and dying of loneliness and get eaten by their cats like an Anita Bruckner novel, you know, 
or they get murdered, their husbands want to get rid of them, whatever. I want to write a whole genre of, of books where women my age are having fun, it's life-affirming, they're taking on the world, they're the heroines of their own story. Um, and, you know, you can't call these books chick lit. I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm not... You hate that phrase, and I'm glad you brought hate. that up because mm. I hate that phrase. Well, it's another way of demeaning absolutely everything women do. It's, and we use it ourselves as women, and we shouldn't. Mm. No. Well, also, you know... If you write, if you're a man and you write first person funny, funny fiction, you know, you get compared to Chekhov and we get sort of chick off, you know. Oh. So, and it just, and we get cupcakes and pink covers and it's just so annoying. And also at my age, I'm not a chick, I'm a, I'm a chook. So my <laughs> new genre is going to be called I Don't Give a Shit Lit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where the women I write about just take on the frigging world. Oh, and the new it. one is about two. And it's an odd couple comedy where two women get thrown together when they realise they've married the same man and then they chase their bigamous husband around the world to get their money back. It's a raunchy romp and I had so much fun writing it. And I just hope it encourages other women my age just to go forth and be fabulous. That is a motto for life, isn't it? It yeah. really is. Oh, you have given us so much good advice. But if there was one thing before we go that you want to stick in our listeners' minds, what is that one overarching piece of advice? Oh, definitely adventure before dementia. Carpe diem like there's no tomorrow. Because, you know, a Zimmer friend could kind of cramp your style on a black ski run so <laughs> or on a scuba in Cuba, you know, so just don't waste another minute. Just go out and make the world your own and laugh every day with your girlfriends and have an orgasm with a beta male. Perfect. Perfect. Trish, that's your to-do list. For it today. is, yes. I've been writing <laughs> yeah. that down. But may I just explain that Trish is actually wearing her pyjamas. <laughs> It was so busy this morning. Look. Very nice PJs, darling. I put on a flouncy, lovely, pretty top and I've tucked it into my pyjama bottom. <laughs> She's going to seize the day afterwards. I'm Take those PJs off seizing. and go and seize I'm the day. Carpe, I carpe in DMing. What a breath of fresh air. I mean, you get that from her books, but to just hear it all, and so much helpful, useful advice. And I loved, you know, the friendships. That was just, you know, seize the day. Seize the day and seize your friends. That's It's what. like when you have a chat with Cathy, and I've been lucky to have her in mm. my life, it's like you go out and your batteries are a bit run down and mm. uh, you spend an hour with her and someone's put brand new Duracell batteries yeah. back in. <laughs> You're ready to go. I love the way she said that women are underdogs. We are kind of underdogs. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit harder if you're a woman in life. You know, in every kind of metric, we don't do as well. So we do try harder and we can make the most of it. And I just think that joy of keeping your friends close. You know, we are 53 and 54. I always have to get that in every episode. But we've got, until we hit 60, we've got this magnificent decade Mm. of new Mm. things to try. And we are only going to do that with the kind of nourishment of our friends and family. You sort of need to be reminded now and again. And I love the way she, obviously she's got, endless bags of energy and but I love how she channels it into women doesn't she telling stories about women supporting women having fun with women I just love it and as for that romance with Brian Brian. Peter Brian we need very handsome Brian but he is good for her good for good for Um, this is the new AI intro. It's your new announcement. A noodle. I don't know where it's come from. Anyway, Trish, take me back in time. I'm going to take you back to a queue at the post office. 
Well, I'm bored already. I know you're bored, but so I I'm was stopping thinking... you. I'll stop you there. No, actually, funnily enough, it ties in with what we were talking about earlier about pocket money. And do you remember when you got your first kind of little post office account or oh, bank account? I do. And you got yes. A little book and they used to write in by hand when you used to take out a pound or you'd put 50p in or whatever it was back in the early 70s simpler times it was so great it felt so grown up but you always had to queue because it was always a queue wasn't it I mean I just think we wouldn't I wouldn't queue for anything these days there's a massive queue now Trish Covid that seems to be the excuse there's a huge queue when I go to the post office office. to to sell or collect their depop shenanigans all the things they say they're going to do to make money pocket money themselves but don't actually do so I end up going to the post office and queuing I mean I know the little man behind the till now we have a little chat (laughs) oh do you well it's bringing back those memories I think it was very sweet in the days before cash point machines and and all of that malarkey little post office savings but what about you i'm going to ask the listeners about this one because i gave the kids some money for the recent half term and said just go and get mm. your, your snacks because everything yeah. i get is wrong so this is your budget here are your here's your snacks go and get your snacks so mm-hmm. they came back with and i had to put it on instagram i mean I all man and i said oh, get some horrific. pieces of fruit as well i said just you know help me out here and they didn't get fruit they got fruit strings <laughs> of course they did yes <laughs> which they said are fruit which are not fruit at all and then i was remembering that in the olden days mm. my mum and dad used to keep their snacks separate to prevent the other one oh. eating it well mostly <gasps> my mum kept her snacks separate because oh. my you know, she didn't want to eat my dad's snacks so yeah. my dad's snacks were Fig rolls, disgusting. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, my God, I can't even smell them. Mm. And Turkish delight. Oh. My mum used to keep um, upmarket dark chocolate. Oh, very posh. Very posh. Really, Bourneville. Oh, Bourneville, that's yes. That's yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that upmarket, considered that upmarket today. But no. I obviously think then that maybe is the key to a long and happy marriage because they're Just still together. Snacks, yeah. snacks, I love it. Yeah, so if you are listening, can you tell us the snack habits of your household? Because mm. I know it's a small thing, but it does take up. I mean, we talk about snacks almost oh, all God the time. Obsessed. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and rate and review us too. And please download your episodes. Yes, and you can join us on our Facebook group for more midlife chat and fun. And also you can follow us on Instagram or you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. 